you should run your company every day with the view that it's for sale. That doesn't mean you're actually selling the business, but you're running the company from the point of view of maximizing profitability, making the right decisions as to taking on certain kinds of customers, accepting certain kinds of work, bringing in the right kind of employees. The decision-making process should be motivated by developing the company and building it for a long-term exit strategy. John Hyde, Managing Director of NAPL's Professional Services Group, works with owners of graphics communications companies as they face the challenging questions that come up when you start to think about buying or selling a printing business. He's our guest today on the NAPL Mergers and Acquisitions podcast. I'm your host, Steve Lubetkin. Hello and welcome to the NAPL Mergers and Acquisitions podcast, produced by NAPL, the Trade Association for Excellence in Graphic Communications Management. NAPL's comprehensive slate of business-building solutions provides company leaders with the strategies, insights, and guidance they can use to make informed business decisions, minimize risk, anticipate change, and profitably grow their business. Within NAPL, the industry experts in our professional services group deliver independent advice to owners and senior managers of companies who need specialized know-how and practical insights as they consider strategic options or make critical decisions affecting their business. For more information about NAPL, visit napl.org or call 1-800-642-NAPL. That's one 800 642 6275 and select option 4. Now to our program. John Hyde is managing director of the NAPL Professional Services Group, a respected graphic communications industry consultant specializing in a broad range of strategic transactions. John has more than 16 years experience helping owners of printing companies and other graphic communications firms implement successful restructurings, mergers, acquisitions, and other strategic initiatives. John works with client companies and directs NAPL staff and associate consultants in helping owners and managers achieve their business objectives. John worked as a lawyer handling mergers and acquisitions before becoming a consultant to the graphic communications industry. He joined NAPL in May 2004. We spoke at NAPL's headquarters in Paramus, New Jersey. John Hyde, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. John, you are the NAPL expert or voice of authority, if you will, on mergers and acquisitions in the printing industry. Isn't the printing industry already consolidated? Aren't we already done with mergers and acquisitions? What's going on here? Well, some people think that, but the reality is that there are many more companies that will need to engage in some form of strategic transaction. And we we know that based on NAPL's industry trend analysis and the work done by our our chief economist, Andy Paparazzi, who has for many years tracked industry trends and issues. And his research clearly indicates that consolidation is a long-term fundamental trend in the industry. It is not necessarily connected to any particular economic conditions on a year-to-year basis. Rather, it's caused by changes in technology changes in customer expectations, and really the ever-demanding changes of what it takes to survive and compete in today's marketplace. So what are some examples of the places where this merger activity is coming from? 
it's being driven on two main fronts. One front is the buyers, and the typical buyers are looking for sales, and they're looking for capabilities. And the reason is that it's very difficult to get new customers through organic growth. Very often, buyers are looking to grow and add new customers by buying a business that already has customers in place in addition to their ongoing marketing campaigns. And it's also easier in many cases to create new capabilities by buying them than starting them from scratch. So the buyers are motivated primarily by acquiring sales and capabilities. That's one half of the equation. On the other side of the equation are sellers, and what they're typically motivated by are preserving capital and transitioning from ownership. Those are the two main motivations. Just as an aside, it sounds remarkably similar to the uh, consolidation and the uh, merger activity that goes on in the banking industry. It's actually very similar to, to the consolidation in banking. And what creates the consolidation is the overlap in the infrastructure, meaning the duplication of personnel, of equipment, of buildings. And unfortunately, it's the consolidation savings that creates the profitability, that creates the cash to actually implement these strategic transactions. So as uh, people are looking at ways to consolidate, ways to grow their businesses, who are the typical buyers who are, who are driving these deals? Most of the buyers are regional, privately held companies that are already in the graphic communications industry. Yes, there are some buyers coming into the industry, individuals that come out of corporate America. Sometimes those folks will buy an independent printing company. Other times they, might, they may buy a franchise. But most transactions in the graphic communications industry comes from companies that are strategically motivated to pursue growth opportunities in that type of manner. And on the other side of the table, what are the factors that are making owners think seriously about selling their businesses? Capital avoidance is a big one and also burnout. I would say those are the two big ones. There are about 70% of the companies in the industry are more or less underperforming. There, these are companies that could be improved and they could become leading companies or if they aren't, they, they may eventually cease to exist. 10% of the industry are leading companies, and those are the companies that are enduringly successful year after year. They have strong management, great customers, outstanding capabilities. They're very profitable, and they're growing rapidly. 20% is on the bottom, and unfortunately, those are companies that will not survive in years to come. So if you look at the industry from the point of view of 10% leaders, 70% are underperforming, and 20% will eventually cease to exist, it, it stands to reason that the buyers are going to be companies that are motivated to try to improve their business by acquiring sales, capabilities, and profits from another company. And the sellers are the folks that are going the other way on that. And those are the folks that really can't compete any further. And it's time for their businesses to be transitioned in a way that preserves some value. So how do you know when is the right time to sell? Some people say, you know, wait until we pay down the debt a little bit. Some people say, let's sell when the prices are high. How do you know when to start thinking about a sale? That's the toughest question that comes up in advising an owner of a, of a graphic communications company. The question of timing, when to sell the business. 
And one of our colleagues has said it best, you should run your company every day with the view that it's for sale. That doesn't mean you're actually selling the business, but you're running the company from the point of view of maximizing profitability, making the right decisions as to taking on certain kinds of customers, accepting certain kinds of work, bringing in the right kind of employees. The decision-making process should be motivated by developing the company and building it for a long-term exit strategy. In terms of timing, there's a lot of variables, and, and some of them have to do with market conditions. And by that, I mean that right now, for instance, there are more buyers looking for opportunities than there are sellers. And it's counterintuitive because of the challenges in the marketplace, and, and many companies are thinking, well, it's such a hard business to be in, a lot of people want to get out. It's just the opposite. There are people who want to buy who want to build their companies through doing strategic transactions. And those folks are very actively developing campaigns to find opportunities. There are more buyers than sellers. And as a result of that, guess what? The prices go up. And that's we've seen that in recent years. For the purposes of the seller, how do you make yourself, obviously it's not that difficult to make yourself attractive if there are more buyers than sellers, but what are some of the things that sellers can do to find opportunities? And on the other side of the coin, what are some of the things the buyers can do? Unlike the real estate marketplace, it's not feasible to list a printing company for sale. And the reason is that if the employees, the customers, and the suppliers knew that the business was for sale, they would have a downward spiral. The employees would get concerned and leave. The customers would switch companies. The suppliers would tighten up credit. So in this industry, it's the reverse. The buyers are the ones that have to get known to be out there willing to do acquisitions. And the buyers that are successful in doing that have ongoing proactive acquisition campaigns to put the word out that they are looking for these sort of strategic transaction opportunities. The sellers, on the other hand, are faced with the confidentiality issue that I just alluded to, and it's critical for those owners to really know what they're looking for in a sale and not to just open the door without some clear guidance on what their options are and what are the expected outcomes. If they have too many meetings, too many discussions, it's inevitable that confidentiality would be, will begin to break and they face consequences of having people know that their business is for sale, and that's usually not a good thing. What are some of the steps that a seller should be taking or thinking about taking when they start the process of trying to identify a merger partner? Well, there's three things that are critical. There has to be a strategic fit. There has to be good chemistry among the principals. And the deal itself needs to be properly done in terms of the price and the structure. And the owners that are doing their homework, and sometimes the homework takes years in many cases, they're getting up to speed on understanding how these transactions are put together they understand the marketplace for mergers and acquisitions. And these are the owners that when the time is right to actually implement a sale, they'll be in a very good position because they'll be totally prepared. So for an owner that's already in discussions with another company talking about a merger and acquisition, but hasn't quite gotten to the point of talking about serious numbers, what are some of the things they can do to figure out if this is worth pursuing on a serious basis? Very often we hear from owners who say, well, we've been talking to so-and-so for nine months now, and, and as soon as I hear that, I'm thinking, what's there to talk about for nine months? 
here's the point. Too often owners are engaged in these long-term flirting relationships. It's counterproductive. There's no need to spend nine months having you know preliminary discussions and just kind of getting to know each other. What, what we recommend is a much more efficient, shorter process and to focus the time and effort into a condensed version of what otherwise would take many, many months. And the reason is owner's time is valuable. And if they're going to spend half their day in meetings and lunches and playing golf to get to know people, that's going to result in having them take the, their eye off the ball and the company's performance may suffer during that exploratory period. So we recommend, again, this is something we, we do with clients all the time, we prefer having less conversations but having the conversations with the right companies. And that determination is based on the strategic fit and based on a sense as to what would be a good possible partner in terms of market presence. When companies get to the point of trying to put numbers on the deal, is there a standard formula or rule of thumb that's used to figure out what a company's worth? There's a lot of misconception about that. We get asked all the time, is there a standard formula? And people assume that there is. What they are influenced by are the trade publications that periodically have articles about EBITDA and a multiple of EBITDA as the standard for valuing printing companies. And where this gets confusing is that the EBITDA methodology, and just for, for those who may not be so familiar with it, that stands for earnings before taxes, interest, depreciation, and amortization. And it's a measurement of the company's cash flow from operations. The problem with that as the measurement for most printing companies is that it assumes two things. It assumes, number one, that the company has earnings, and many printing companies have you know, questionable or no earnings. And the other assumption is that it assumes the business is sold as a going entity. And the reality is that most transactions, I would say at least 90%, do not involve the sale of a going entity. They are actually the sale of customers and people and a liquidation of the plant. And in those scenarios, the EBITDA methodology is not as appropriate as some others. So I would say overall that there's a misconception about EBITDA. It seems widely talked about, but rarely used in most transactions. So what are some of the measures that you would recommend that people take a look at? It does all come down to cash flow. The cash flow that the acquirer will gain by adding the customers and the capabilities of the target company. That's really what has to be looked at. So what that does, it puts the financials of the buyer under the microscope as much as the financials of the seller. Again, this may be contrary to what most people think. People think it's the seller's financials who get scrutinized, and they certainly do, but they have to be read in conjunction with the buyer's financials, particularly the buyer's margins, because now it's the buyer who's going to be producing the printed materials, and it's their uh, labor costs and material costs and things of that nature that are going to go into the equation. So it's critical at a at a uh, at the part of the process where you want to now determine the price and the structure of the transaction. There needs to be an analysis of what will be the cash flow going forward from the buyer's point of view of the sales and the capabilities that they're taking on. And with that cash flow, then some of that gets used to pay for the transaction. And that leads to the discussions on how the deal is structured. John, in today's business environment, what are the business objectives that would motivate a buyer, a printing company, looking for a suitable acquisition? What are the things they're going to be looking to achieve? 
there's two different kinds of buyer-motivated acquisition. One is sales, that they're looking to fill existing capacity, and what they're looking for is work that will fit their existing presses and ideally even fitting the seasonal gaps in their business. So it's all about capacity utilization. The other kind of acquisition is about capabilities, where they're looking for people with certain subject matter expertise and perhaps certain equipment that could be done to produce work that complements the existing product mix of the company. What are some examples of ways that a printing company could expand its services by bringing in specialized products and services? Some of the ones that we see that are fairly common are mailing services and fulfillment as well as digital printing capabilities. I would say those three are the ones that we see the most often, meaning companies that have sheet-fed or web printing capability are looking for ways to enhance their service offering. And there's a lot of research, some of which is done by NAPL, that indicates that mailing, fulfillment, and digital printing are growth areas that nicely complement sheet-fed or web printing. And that's where we see the owners faced with the decision. Do you try to do that yourself and you bring in people, equipment, infrastructure, and there is a set of risks and rewards to building it from scratch? Or the owner could look for an opportunity to buy an existing business that already has the equipment, the people, the customers, the procedures in place with those capabilities. And part of the consideration must be weighing the learning curve of implementing it yourself against the the ease of integration of bringing in people already doing it. Exactly. And so the owner who is looking to buy as opposed to make, using a common phraseology for that, it's going to result in a valuation that may be very different from another company looking at the same opportunity. That's one of the reasons why you can have two different valuations radically different for the same target company. And that brings up a really important point in structuring a strategic acquisition. That's that's how to value the company. Can you get into a little bit more detail about the, the factors that play into the valuation? Well, once you put the Ouija board away, what you really have to do is look at the cash flow. And the cash flow post-closing is the one that really matters, especially where it's a situation where the sales are being tucked into the acquirer's location. In those transactions, we often see anywhere from 20 to 30 percent of the gross sales being acquired as falling to the bottom line for the acquirer. That's an incredibly high level of profitability. Here's the key. It has to be with no new equipment being added. If it's, if it's work that's done on the existing infrastructure of the acquirer and they already have the equipment, they already have the building, they already have the overhead, okay, maybe, maybe they have to add one or two customer service personnel or maybe add a few people for another shift. But the reality is that 20 to 30% is a good expectation of what could go to the bottom line, especially for commercial sheet-fed printing. For web printing, it'll be a little bit less. It'll be more in the 15 to 20% uh, range. But this is highly profitable, and it's a way for a company to go from being uh, an underperformer to being a leader in one fell swoop. One of the big factors that the financial folks talk about in any kind of merger and acquisition transaction is risk. How does risk have an effect, both its level and where the risk resides on determining the selling price for any company? The, The risk is often quantified as 
what happens if this doesn't work? Meaning, what if the customers don't come over to the acquired company? What if the salespeople don't want to do this and they don't come over to the acquired company? So from the acquirer's perspective, it's important to run some financial analysis that says, okay, what if we lose X percent of the customers? And it, it, It's a dilution analysis that we often do with clients. And here are some examples. A successful acquisition would have maybe no dilution. Now, what happens in those cases? That would be where the owner of the seller is heavily involved. He or she continues to work with the customers. The salespeople are on board, and there's a seamless transition. In those cases, there may not be any loss of customers. Sometimes 15% is a number we use just for a discussion point. That seems to be kind of a common number of what would be lost in a transaction unless it's really flawless. Anything more than that, 25%, 30%, that's already getting into some bad territory. But we've seen them in even worse than that. We've seen cases where they've lost even more than 50% of the customers. And you can imagine the long list of errors that would have gone into that type of implementation. So back to the question of risk, it has to do with how much of the business is preserved after the closing. Now, you might be thinking, well, I'm the seller. What do I care? I'm going to get a check and I'm going to leave and go down to Florida and I'm done with this. The risk is the buyer's risk. Guess again, that's not how this deal, that's not how this industry structures most transactions. Now, I'll say most because I know that there are some examples where the seller gets what they are looking for in cash at the closing. They have no continuing obligations, no responsibilities, and they're out of there. That rarely happens. We're talking about very isolated cases at this point. Usually, the company, or I should say the owner that's selling, has a continuing connection to the, to the success of the venture going forward. That might be reflected in the structure of the transaction, meaning they would be getting additional monies if and when sales are retained. That's called a royalty arrangement. Most transactions have a royalty component or an earnout or a contingent note or some type of back-end mechanism that ties the future success, to, I should say that ties the consideration received by the seller to the ultimate success of the venture. So you're in some sense not out of the picture even after you've sold the company. Selling does not mean you're out the door. Selling means that you are no longer the owner of the business, but you still have a relationship to the acquired company. And you may be working there as an employee, you may be only there for a short time as an employee, or you could be there for long term, it depends. But your consideration for what, you, what you're getting for having sold your business often will have a plus or a minus depending on that future performance. So it's in the seller's best interest to find a strategic partner that's a good fit so it's more likely that the business will be retained and that the future payments are actually made. And that sort of underscores what you were saying a little bit earlier about the intangibles of chemistry between buyer and seller being important to the transaction. What are the things in terms of chemistry that can have a, an influence on success or failure in a merger? Chemistry is huge. And to be more specific, two things, communications and problem solving. The communications between the principals really is the most critical thing. They have to be on the same page as to how they're interacting on 
uh, on a daily basis at first. Doing the transaction will require daily interaction. And then after the closing, it doesn't necessarily have to be daily, but there needs to be a philosophy in place as to what type of problems are discussed by who and at what level and when. And without some clarity over those basic communication points, it is really left to chance as to whether they will be connecting on a personal level or not. And problem solving is is the next step in that. If you're communicating, then you got to think about, okay, problems are going to come up. How do we resolve them? And the best relationships exist when there's good communications and good problem-solving skills. When you lack one or the other, that's where you see some real problems. And this is not just in printing industry mergers and acquisitions. It's obviously true for a lot of things, including uh, on the personal side of things. So if I'm a printer and I'm thinking about doing an acquisition, what are some of the top-line tips that you would want me to keep in mind? Clarity in your objectives is number one. Are you trying to grow by acquisition, meaning you're trying to look for customers and that have work that fills your plant because you're concerned about current utilization? Or are you looking at capabilities because you want to build your company's strength in terms of how it comes to market and what it does for its customers and how valuable it is in the eyes of new and existing customers? So the objectives have to be clarified. Once that occurs, then the most important thing is time management and not spinning your wheels on things that may sound good but really aren't and you could you could spend up you could spend a lot of time kicking the tires on opportunities that aren't going to go anywhere and next thing you know you've wasted a year running around all over the place and you have nothing to show for it so time management and having clarity on objectives i believe are two of the keys to success just as you said that the seller is not necessarily gone from the company after the ownership is transferred the need to communicate clearly about the transaction doesn't end when the sale agreement is signed. What are some of the things that buyers and sellers need to keep in mind in communicating about the transaction with their key stakeholders? Communications within the first 24 hours are absolutely critical to the success of an acquisition in the graphic communications industry. And they're also critical even beyond that for the next 72 hours and the next week and the next few months. And they go through different stages. In the first 24 hours, the first reaction that most people have is one of fear. The employees are thinking, what about my job? Customers would be thinking, what about my work? Are you still going to do the same type of quality and the same price? And what does it mean for me? And the suppliers are thinking about, am I going to get paid or not? And do I still have your business going forward? So initially, it's critical for the acquirer and the seller to work together to get clear and consistent communications to the marketplace and specifically get it to the hands of the employees, the customers, and the suppliers. Those are the three constituencies that have to be communicated with early and often in the process. What are the best ways to communicate? The first step is to put together key messages that articulate what is the transaction, what are the objectives, and what actually just happened. And it's amazing how many times people will view the same facts, but they actually might word it differently. Is it a merger? Is it an acquisition? Is it a sale? What are those things mean? And people might have different perceptions of what's a merger, what's an acquisition, what's a sale. And if your management team or if the partners in the business or if the salespeople, if everyone's communicating it slightly differently, 
the company then runs the risk that there's a disconnect between what really happened and what the perception is within the marketplace. And as I've alluded to, there is fear that permeates the environment early on. So it's essential to have messages developed prior to the closing, not too far in advance, but in the immediate time period before the closing, to nail down how is this going to be announced, what are the phrases that are approved by each side, and sometimes there's legal implications, especially in the context of highly leveraged sellers where there's creditors that may not be paid on time. So those considerations have to be balanced and weighed and successfully implemented. That's one of the most critical factors in whether an acquisition will succeed or not. The communication strategy has to be executed flawlessly early in the post-closing environment. How is NAPL useful to companies that are thinking about mergers and acquisitions? What, do you, what kinds of services are you providing to them as they go through that process? There's two main areas that we help our clients with in the merger and acquisition arena. One is identifying candidates that would be appropriate strategic partners for an acquisition or for a sale of the business. And the other is how to do the transaction. We have extensive experience in valuing businesses and guiding the owners on how best to structure the acquisition or the merger or the sale once a candidate has already been identified. So it's really in two areas. It's in identifying strategic partners and in putting the price and structure together for the transaction once candidates have been procured. For many privately held companies, an owner has built a business for many years. It's something that's part of their DNA, if you will. And so there's an emotional component to letting go of the company or changing the company in some way. And how does that factor into the work that you do? There's definitely an emotional component. These are privately held family businesses in many cases where the owner has his or her name on the door. It could be a second or third or even a fourth generation family business. Often the owners have ties to the community and there's long-standing relationships with suppliers, employees, and customers. So these are very personal lifestyle changes that correlate with the sale or even the acquisition of a business. Although acquisitions tend to be less emotional, nonetheless, you're dealing here with individuals and personal uh, aspects of how they're viewing their situation. And as a result, there's a degree of... Uh, non-financial counseling that goes along with the process. It's essential for the owners who are exploring these type of transactions to have a comfort zone with their advisors, whether lawyers, accountants, consultants. They need to be able to have someone they could step back and allow for the emotional interaction to occur, almost analogous to what would happen with a psychologist as part of the merger and acquisition team. There definitely is an emotional component that has to be factored into the equation. Our thanks to John Hyde, Managing Director of NAPL Professional Services Group, for being with us on the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed this NAPL podcast program. If you have comments or suggestions about these podcasts, please drop us an email. The address is NAPL at professionalpodcasts.com. Again, if you'd like more information on the value of NAPL membership, please visit our website at napl.org or call 1-800-642-NAPL. That's 1-800-642-6275. And don't forget to choose option four. 
Until next time, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you out there on the net. Take good care.